I was contemplating what the sermon title really is about, if you will. Where is God in all this? You know, in one sense, this could promise more than I can deliver. <laughs> and in another sense, it could cover just about anything. And you know, some of you know that our sermon titles sometimes are decided ahead of time, but that was not the case in this time. I uh, truly chose this because it is a phrase that we've often used in spiritual direction or guidance. Um, when we are in uh, guidance in prayer, um, we often uh, seek to discern God's will for our lives, the spirit of God moving in our lives, and seek to know whatever the circumstances we bring to that, uh, whether in our personal life or the life of the wider, wider world. We often ask the question, where is God in all of this? I thought of this as I looked to, to the two lectionary texts I'm using today, 2 Samuel and Mark. Uh, in 2 Samuel, we have the story of David um, and the question of whether he is to build a permanent site for the Ark of the Covenant in um, Jerusalem, in Israel. Um, the Ark has been traveling with David, traveling um, as he has continued to seek uh, to defeat his enemies and the enemies of Israel and to establish the boundaries of his kingdom. Um, and it is said in the text, I have been with you wherever you went. And then in the Gospel of Mark, we see Jesus teaching and ministering. And the crowds are overwhelming, if you will. And the disciples are overwhelmed as well. And he says to them before passing over to the other side, come away to a deserted place all by yourselves and rest a while. These texts I brought together this morning to consider two central figures in the midst of active, busy lives. David, the shepherd boy, who slew Goliath and was anointed king of Israel, lived a challenging and full life with many ups and downs. He had to flee the wrath of King Saul, who may have suffered from a mental illness of some sort and sought to kill David. David could calm Saul with his gift of music and the lyre, but he had to dodge a spear which Saul threw at him and would have pinioned him to a wall. He fled and hid from Saul. Later, as king of Israel, he led Israel to military victories, consolidating his power and the widest boundaries of the unified kingdom as Israel and Judah. But we know the familiar story. David engaged in adultery, had the husband of Bathsheba placed in the front lines in battle, and he was killed. Later, marrying Bathsheba, he was condemned by Nathan for the crime of adultery. And later the son that was conceived died. So David knew the grief of loss, the pain of sorrow, knew the ups and downs of life. And yet this was a man who was known to have a whole heart for God, a man after God's own heart. In our text, he wants to build the temple. Nathan at first is told that he will, in fact, build a temple in response to that question, should I create a permanent place for you? But ultimately, Nathan brings the message from God that he is not the one to build the temple. 
that the ark has traveled with David in the tent of the covenant as he's gone around his way. And ultimately, it will be a descendant of his, Solomon, who builds this house for God. But he is told that his name will be established among the great ones of earth. And God never asked him, perhaps because of the challenges and shortcomings of his life, to be the one to create this permanent site for the ark. I think the tent is symbolic of a deeper truth expressed in the text. God does say to David, I, look, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went. Through all those ups and downs, successes and failures, challenges and opportunities, and this is not just with David alone, but with all the people of Israel, since they left bondage in Egypt, sojourned in the wilderness, and ultimately crossed in to the promised land. God had been with them through that arduous journey, that journey of faith. I think there is a lesson here for individuals and communities of faith. As that line said, God is with us wherever we go. And I think as people of faith, that is reassuring. That is indeed a time that reminds us that we are in God's hands and in the care and love of a loving God. Now we are in the midst of a building campaign at the North Campus and new improvements to all of our facilities, North and South and Camp Akita. And as I've reflected upon the excitement and all of this, it also reminds me of the many sacred moments in all these spaces we have had for our community of faith. Personally, uh, in June, we celebrated the wedding of my niece in this sanctuary. She and my daughter each are of the third generation to be married in this sacred space. All of us have had and will have close moments to God in this space, in the North Campus, in Akita. Whether it's baptisms, weddings, worship, education, fellowship in these facilities with which we have been blessed as a community of faith, we are indeed in sacred space. There have been specific places in history that have become sacred. I think of Jerusalem when I was sitting on the Mount of Olives, looking across at a city that had been there 3,000 years, seeing the gate where Jesus would have entered on that Palm Sunday. Or I think of Varanasi in India, where we saw the Ganges, which is sacred to the Hindu people, and also to the Deer Park, where Buddha preached his first sermon. I'm looking forward to seeing Rome next month when we travel to Italy. These are all sacred places, places where God has seen in a specific and concrete way. Many of us feel the sacredness of specific churches in our lives. Not only this church, but when I was living and working in Washington, D.C., the National Cathedral was a special place to me. I remember my first trip to Canterbury Cathedral, and it happened that the archbishop was ordaining priests and deacons that day. Or St. Paul's in the middle of London, which is 
Christopher Wren's wonderful, wonderful church that means so much to that city. These are all very specific places, places that remind us of God's presence, that God is with us, that God goes with us. And yet the text reminds us that God goes with us wherever we go. There is indeed a saying, wherever we go, there we are. In a psychological or spiritual term, it means that even if I make a geographical change, we cannot escape ourselves. Wherever we go, there we are. However, the text also reminds us that wherever we go, God is present. God is with us in all of the circumstances of life. And in reality, our facilities and resources, our buildings are there not so that we can remain inside of them, but so that we can be renewed, restored, and then move out into the world, into the world to change the world, to bring a gift of hope, a gift of the gospel to the world. It's a place to prepare us for ministry to and in a broken world, to and in the broken lives of others, to and in the heart of life itself. So we're not to stay within the walls, but to move outside of these walls, to move into the wider world for which we have been prepared for ministry and service. In the text from Mark, we see Jesus and his disciples actively engaged in ministry of healing and teaching, of ministering to the masses, but they are tired. They need rest. So they go to a deserted place all by themselves to eat, to rest, to learn, to pray, to be restored. This indeed is necessary, even as they realize they're not going to stay there, but they're going to go across the lake to the other side and continue to minister, to heal, to preach, and teach. Both texts remind us that there is a time to act and a time to pray, a time to move out, a time to go forward with a plan of action, a time of discernment, a time to be still and to know God's presence in preparation to give and to serve, to be God's people in the world. We are in a world that seems to be very dualistic in its thinking. Everything seems to be either this or that, good or evil. Oftentimes, we distinguish between action and contemplation. I know most of us who are not monastics don't live in monastic communities separated from the world, where often they are following the liturgy of the hours, all of the ways of praying through the day and through the night. Yes, they work, and they engage in work and vocations, but they also are people of prayer, people of contemplation. We often think of them as passive, as being outside the world, outside the everyday challenges of life. And yet, no one can read Thomas Merton, who was probably the most famous monastic of 
the 20th century world without knowing that all of his contemplation and his prayer truly led to action, led to the reality that we are not just spiritually separated to avoid the problems and challenges of this world, but we are restored and empowered and truly led and guided to service in the world. But our dualistic thinking often results in us acting without thinking and praying, or praying and thinking without acting. Sometimes we choose an active life or a passive life. Richard Rohr has meant much to many with his daily meditations, also the many books he has written. One I read most recently is Falling Upward. It's truly about a spirituality of the second half of life. But in it and in other writings, he is not distinguished about act, between action and contemplation in the sense of saying one comes first, one comes second. He says in his Center for Action and Contemplation, it could be for contemplation and action as well. It does not matter which comes first because both are required. If we act without contemplating God and praying for discernment, we may act out of our ego, our pride, our ambition or out of our feelings of alienation from ourselves and from others and from God. If we pray without coming out on the other side of the lake from a deserted place, we don't engage the world, engage in ministry, in healing, in acting, or in behalf of others and ourselves. We simply rest, avoiding the reality of the world, a world that often distresses us and causes us to live in fear. There's a common reaction to stress. I know often uh, when we counsel couples in preparation for uh, their marriage, there's a section that gauges uh, the stress level in their lives. And many couples this day, when they prepare for marriage, they're often, often paying for it themselves, they're working full time, they're planning it themselves, and there's always a high level of stress with all of those activities. And yet, to some extent, to have stress is to be alive. Stress is part of life, the reality of our lives. But there are times when the stress levels get too high. And often our own response is, our only response is a dualistic one. Either I fight or I flee. Either I challenge it or I avoid it. The fight or flight reaction is so common in so many things in our lives. But it's only through discernment that we can be grounded in God, in God's will for our lives, our life together as a community of faith. This is why it is so important for us when we are experiencing any personal or emotional, spiritual ethical or political challenge to ask that question of where is God in all of this? Rather than being totally dominated by all of those stresses, we can stop. We do have a choice to turn to God, to seek to know where is the movement of the Spirit in our lives? Where is God in all of this situation and all of these circumstances? 
This is not to flee, not to avoid, not to escape. But this is to ask the essential question which spiritual directors and individuals who guide others ask. Where is God in this in your life? In one sense, this could be the ultimate question for everything. Ultimately, there are so many circumstances we would have be another way. Where is God when duck boats sink and lives are ended in an instant and other lives are changed forever? Where is God in wildfires, disasters that are caused naturally or unnaturally by human beings? Where is God when jobs are lost or people go hungry, who live without shelter or other necessities of life? Where is God when stress of all things seem overwhelming, stress about our work, our relationships, our financial circumstances, our losses? All of these things can overwhelm us. And then the ultimate question in our communal life, our political life, where is God when a community and a nation seems fractured, full of division and strife? Where is God when there is war and violence and oppression, which seems to reign so many places in the world? These are tough questions. They can seem overwhelming. They can lead us to despair or challenge our faith. It may lead us to that question which is so difficult for all people of faith. It's the question that has been formally called theodicy. Where is a loving and compassionate God in the midst of pain and suffering in life? But to look at it only through the negative is also to miss the point that life is a blessing and that God also is in all of the blessings and the goodness of life in the joys as well as the sorrows, in the ups as well as the downs, in the opportunities as well as the challenges. God is in all things. As our text reminds us, God goes with us wherever we go. Wherever we go, God is with us in those circumstances. I think of that great hymn we sing, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, at Christmas time during Advent as we seek God among us, the incarnation, God with us. And wherever we find ourselves, if we look with love and compassion to the love and compassion of God, it will be a time that we seek to rest, to pray, to discern, to examine our consciences, to be restored, and renewed, not just simply so that we can experience that in isolation, but so we can move out into the world and serve God and love God and love others. So we're not in that time in a deserted place to be alone. We're not there to never leave, to remain. But when we do come out of that deserted place, We seek to come out in a centered, grounded way, aware of God's presence, of God's call upon our lives. And when we come out of that place, it is not to be passive, but it is to act, 
to act as God calls us to act, to make changes, to be instruments alleviating suffering, serving others. As citizens in a democracy, we are called to be informed, to vote and register others to vote, to act, to seek equality and justice and fairness in the world. As we come out with discernment, we are called to take responsibility for our own lives and the lives of the community and world in which we live, in which we live and grow, and in which our children will continue to live and grow. This is how we look at these stories of faith, going back thousands of years to those figures of David and Jesus who remind us that we are called to serve, to follow God's will for our lives, and that there are times we need to rest, to go inward, to seek to know what is God's will, what is God's guidance for our lives. It is indeed a blessing that we have been offered this, because otherwise we live lives that may not truly be effective at alleviating the suffering of ourselves and others, of alleviating those things that we know are not right in our culture that need to be changed. I have heard it said oftentimes people are challenged by the idea of politics or ethics or matters in the pulpit. And yet the reality is, is that politics, ethics, whatever we are dealing with in our personal lives or the lives of our community, are really a manifestation of our faith. And yet we cannot act out of that faith without discernment, without understanding of what God calls us to be and to do. So as we go forth, let us remember to always care for the spirit within us to look and discern what is God calling me to be and what is God calling me to do. And out of that, let us act, act with love and compassion as people of faith in a world much in need. Amen.